Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale, and we are so excited that you found us today for this episode. Our guest today is Ray Schroeder. He is the Senior Fellow at UPCEA and the Associate Vice Chancellor at University of Illinois Springfield. Ray, how are you doing today? Oh, tip top. Looking forward to our discussions. Same here. And we've got some meat to dive into uh, and some thought leadership that hopefully is very forward thinking and engaging for the audience. But before we dive in, uh, if you could give our audience a little background on yourself and both of your roles uh, that you currently serve in. Oh, sure. JW, you know, uh, it's uh, been a very uh, fulfilling and continuing uh, career. I, I began teaching uh, 50 years ago, 1971, on the Urbana campus of the University of Illinois as an instructor. And uh, from there, I came to the Springfield campus of the University of Illinois. And as we developed in the 1997, I was given the privilege and honor to launch online learning on our campus. And now for the last uh, 24 years, uh, we have taught online courses and degrees. We now have a couple dozen of those. And in fact, um, for the past several commencements as we survey graduates, 98% uh, of our students are have taken online. So um, the remote teaching of the pandemic is not entirely new to our experience. But I also have the good fortune of working with uh, one of the largest and most prestigious associations in uh, higher education, uh, UPCEA, UPCEA, the University Professional Continuing Ed Association. And as senior fellow, I uh, author a biweekly column in uh, Inside Higher Education, one of our journals, or one of the journals in higher ed, but also uh, work with our 350 some members as they approach the challenges and opportunities of this new era in higher ed. So uh, I'm very much engaged in uh, this. Uh, after all those prior decades, it, it seems to be coming together uh, in these years post-pandemic. And I can't wait to get your perspective from both sides of your experience, um, especially uh, starting an online uh, initiative in 1997, 24 years ago. So many times uh, we have uh, listeners write in that uh, this online learning is not a new concept. This has been going on for, for 20 plus years, uh, and you were really one of the pioneers um, of that. So thank you for your service in uh, being a pioneer. Give us a little bit of um, pre-pandemic and through the pandemic. What have been the biggest changes that you've seen? And I'm assuming that uh, University of Illinois Springfield, you guys were probably more prepared than most uh, to, to handle this type of situation, but maybe from your, your senior fellow role, what were the other uh, universities, uh, what were the common themes in this pre and, and now during and hopefully coming into post-pandemic um, themes that really emerged at the top of the list? Yeah, great, great question. You know, it, it wasn't easy for anyone, including the University of Illinois Springfield, although more than two thirds, perhaps more than three quarters of our faculty members had taught online and um, half our enrollments were online. And, you know, so we were already well prepared for the prior, from the prior two decades, but, um, but still there were those who had not. 
and still there were students who had not been online for more than one or two classes. So there's a lot to be done. Probably more uh, to the point was working with the member institutions of OPSEA. The, uh, I recall one call and I'll not mention the name, but a, a, a Big Ten University. I had a great uh, colleague at uh, one of the schools who called the Thursday before spring break and said, I just got a call from my provost. And she said, the students won't be coming back. And you know, we have something more than 8,000 classes on campus. And most of those faculty members have never taught online. So you and your 22 staff members need to work on this problem in the next uh, 10 days. And so this was an enormous challenge, usually launching, fully launching an online course um, really takes a semester because you're developing the pedagogy and all kinds of ancillary tools. And so, so many in our field have differentiated between what we call remote learning, which is what happened during the pandemic, and online learning, which is kind of a full development with multimedia and engagement of students' active learning. Um, but uh, so we all went through that process. I think uh, um, there have been successes and I think generally there's a greater awareness. It's interesting that while students were not fully satisfied um, the second semester last year, when their faculty members only had a week to prepare, um, they're much more satisfied now and a significant majority, about three quarters say, they would like to continue, although maybe not exclusively, but continue taking online or blended classes. So there's been a big change, a sea change in the attitude among students, but also among faculty members who previously were somewhat reluctant, perhaps afraid of the challenges of going online. So yeah, big changes. And I think uh, the pandemic has accelerated our move forward. And you brought up uh, student satisfaction. That's something I've noticed. Uh, and we've had this conversation uh, a few times on the pandemic. It, there, it seems like there was a, a very distinct understanding of this is not planned and prepared for last spring. Um, and then over the summer, um, expectations went up. So last fall, a lot of students uh, didn't feel like uh, the experience was where it should have been. And it seems we've made some big strides this past spring in kind of upping the level of engagement and not just being a remote course, but being more of an online learning course. Um, and now it seems going into the fall, there is going to be a lot of hybrid and expectations are just continuing to grow. What are universities doing to continue to up their online learning game as it's kind of come from zero to 60 or 80 or 100 um, in a very short amount of time? Yeah, certainly um, the adding of instructional designers um, where possible, and that makes that market very tight. And uh, it's good for the salaries of incoming designers um, and specialists in uh, um, AV and uh, the applications of media. Um, so it's really adding to the staff. The, you know, at roughly 30%, um, somewhat south of that, um, of students were online previously. <clears throat> 
So now when you take two thirds and you just jump in to the deep end of the pool, oh man, you know, it's trying to bring all of those up, up to grade. And so we've seen strategies where uh, there might be one faculty member who really was known in their department or is known for excellence in online. And that faculty member is also doing um, uh, informal meetings with colleagues trying to help them as they're moving forward. So, you know, it's been pulling all the strings that one can, and yet it's still gonna take time because of the volume. This will continue to improve over time. You know, ideally at the University of Illinois Springfield, we have faculty members who teach a class one semester online, then teach it on campus for the students who choose, you know, are in the dorms. And uh, so, you know, you get both of those and you continue to grow incrementally. But there was, you know, no time for increments. It was, you know, full speed ahead. So yes, it's improving. It'll improve in the fall, it'll improve in the spring, it'll improve next year. And those are incremental improvements, albeit accelerated um, and exciting. But really now the setup for today's conversation is talking about something that, that kind of breaks the status quo, that thinks out of the box a little bit. Um, really want to dive into your thoughts on the subscription-based model of education and higher education in particular versus the tuition-based traditional model. Um, give us the state of play. Uh, is anyone doing it yet? Um, it's bubbled up this conversation um, for years now, but really in the last year. And, and what is you know, possible moving into the future with this? Well, yes, it certainly is visionary. And um, the, the uh, for-profits and the non-university providers of professional and continuing ed, LinkedIn, Coursera, Google, you know, they have subscription models. So the models are there and they've been successful. Um, let's look, if we might, at the very broad context here. Um, number one, um, the population of the United States is not broadly increasing. And in fact, the fertility rate is somewhere around 1.7 and uh, you need 2.1 to maintain the status right. quo. Um, we have a couple of what we call demographic cliffs. Those are instances in which um, the high school graduating class will be significantly lower. And that would be um, 17 years, 18 years after 2008, after the recession, right? And so that's coming right up. And then now we had a significant drop last year and we're looking at maybe more into this year, we'll see. Um, and so we'll see that in 17 years. So while we look at the patterns, we're seeing, you know, slow down and then drop and then drop. <clears throat> so the traditional student, 18 year old, 17 year old, um, that market is shrinking. And there are, you know, each institution hopes to survive and grow <laughs> their class. So, uh, so here we're talking about a customer base that is not growing and really has very little hope of growing. At the same time, um, students have accumulated $1.7 trillion in student debt. And that is uh, being paid off at 
um, interest rates that are higher than today's interest rates. Largely, there are many right. uh, senior citizens on social security who are still paying student debts from when they were students. Um, so there's a, a great concern there as far as the cost and the cost continues to go up. Tuition is not being cut. You know, it's just not, it's going up 2%, 3%. And has annually. So when we look broadly at the market, there are a lot of pressures. In, not insignificant are the pressures from uh, the mega universities, if you will, Coursera, um, edX, those MOOC, as we call them, massive online course providers, and then Southern New Hampshire and Arizona State, very large in and of themselves, very large um, universities with very large uh, online programs. And so, um, so that pressure is enormous. Um, at the same time, we see the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the US Department of Labor says uh, that the average tenure of an employee in the United States is just over four years, say 4.3, 4.4 years. That means every four years, not only do our employees change a job, but they change employers and the expectations of employers and the uh, skills required and the knowledge required. Uh, so, um, so there's a market out there opening up. And we refer to that commonly as the 60 year curriculum. And the concept is this, that we see students coming in and it's not that they're gonna be with us four or five, six years, and then their shadow will never darken the door of a university again. Um, but instead, we see them leaving, coming back in five years for a certificate, coming back in five more years for a certification, another certificate, continuing uh, that education. So now to get you know, specifically to your question, um, Generally, I mean, there are a couple of instances uh, where there are attempts now to employ subscription um, opportunities for enrollment at Publix, but generally it's the uh, for-profit entities that are doing it. And there are certain presumptions that go into that. The presumption is in, well, I, I will say that there are expectations and ex expectation is gosh, if I subscribe and I can finish a certification in eight months rather than you know, 12 or 15 months, it'll cost me less. And so that means those courses should not be semester-based. They should be self-paced, um, perhaps using adaptive learning. Uh, and we can talk about AI and and the way in which it can enhance the uh, outcomes there. But um, so making that transition is also a challenge for universities. But, you know, we see it in Idaho and the university, I think I shared, uh, or I, was it Idaho, I think, but in any event, um, we're seeing some attempts to move forward with, uh, um, with subscription. But at the same time, we see Google. I mean, Google is not a trivial, competition. I mean, and they've got, they've got a subscription certificate programs, sign up $39 a month, take, you know, all you can eat buffet, take as many as you can and out you go with a certificate. 
that that is spurring higher education to move forward. Yeah, and it seems like a number of higher education institutions have been offering adult learning, alumni, or even non-alumni courses and micro courses, certifications. That's been a trend. This seems like it's not too far-fetched to just kind of marry the two as far as, you know, extending that uh, undergraduate experience into the adult learning in more of a subscription model versus an ad hoc kind of as-you-need-it piece. Um, some have even proposed a, a, a lifetime membership, right? Most universities uh, claim that once you've, you know, graduated, you're a member of our community for life in, in name and hopefully in donation money, um, but maybe a, a way to offer uh, added value throughout the lifespan of uh, a career of a, a graduate from the undergraduate program. Is that something that you might um, see happening in the future? Absolutely. And that's an asset. You know, one of the challenges which became remarkably apparent uh, during the pandemic is students in a given semester can drop out, stop out, you know, take, take that uh, year off when all of a sudden everything's changed and you know, gosh, I don't go back to my dorm or, or uh, whatever fraternity Greek house, then the question, you know, what have I lost? Well, you know, that was half of why I was going <laughs> to college in, in an 18-year-old mind. So, well, understandably, because it is a way to mature, it's, it's a place much of America, not all, but much of America becomes an adult and they learn to interact with other people. So, but oh, huge drops, and we even look at this current semester, our just ended semester, enrollments were down 600,000, nearly half a million, more than half a million rather, across the US. Numbers just came out yesterday. It's, uh, uh, it's remarkable uh, to see that kind of drop. And uh, one of the things that we have seen over the last decade is that enrollments at colleges and universities have gone down every single semester for 10 years. And wow. every single semester for 10 years <clears throat> within that subset, that declining subset, the number of online students went up. So an increasing share because that's what students want. They're paying. Uh, by, and they're showing us what they're willing to pay for by their feed or by their registration. So that's what they're looking for. So if you go to a subscription or a lifetime subscription, particularly, if you go to an annual or uh, whatever subscription, it helps to stabilize what you've got. Stabilize your income um, so that you can make commitments uh, for hiring staff and new programs. Absolutely. And it, and it feels like this is another case of the pandemic, not necessarily being the big disruptor as it may look on the surface, but really just magnifying and accelerating trends that were already happening, right? Campuses, you know, on-site decline, online, uh, you know, increase. This just kind of really put the magnifying glass on it. I, I like to make the um, analogy a little bit to the reliance on in-person trade shows for many businesses. Um, that they would go there, and that's where a lot of the business was done. And in the pandemic, that was not an option. They had to move online. And a lot of these shows do started doing virtual conferences. Like education, not that great at first, but they got better as the spring went to the fall and 
in the fall back into this spring. And now many of those shows, um, Marcus Gill is actually going to be at the ASU GSP Summit uh, this August, um, are moving to the hybrid model, right? They realized with the virtual model, instead of reaching 5,000 on-site attendees, they could reach 15,000 people around the world that never could have come on campus, come to the show. Um, and so there's kind of some excitement in that area um, that we actually might be able to expand the reach uh, to more students, whether they're on-site or online or a hybrid. Is there that half glass full potential and uh, excitement that even with the birth rates declining, if we were strategic as a, a higher ed community, we may be able to actually reach more students um, in both you know, the hybrid, the on-site, and the online moving forward that would help keep the institutions going, um, but then also help get more students in the pipeline uh, to get an, a higher education. Absolutely. And so what we see are forward-thinking institutions. I'll, I'll note Georgia Tech and MIT and the University of Illinois, uh, uh, the Urbana campus offering an MBA through Coursera, <clears throat> and, and many, many more. But, but those are examples of ones that have looked ahead, that see the trends, that see the market, that see the need, and, and have moved toward it, have embraced that change over which no institution has control. Now, the institutions that have not, they didn't have the, opera, the uh, capital resources, the community colleges notably had about a 10% drop, 9.5, this spring in enrollments. Well, they couldn't move forward because they didn't have the resources in some of the smaller institutions. So it's an interesting environment when we look broadly at the marketplace. And, and, and I had written um, somewhat recently about this intersection between employers and employees, and in the middle is higher ed. Um, so we are there brokering to employers and we hope meeting their needs. And I think one of the things that has come out of this is that we're more sensitive to the needs of business and industry. We're, you know, I, <clears throat> I like to say that too often we teach through the rear view mirror, you know, instead of through the windshield, we're looking back and we're teaching five years ago, what happened eight years ago, six, two, you were not looking forward. And that's really not doing justice to our students. What we need to do is to collaborate with industry leaders and business leaders. What are the needs today? What do they see as the needs tomorrow? And how can we best meet those needs? And there are certain givens, you know, I, I think um, <clears throat> in years gone by, and I've been in higher ed for, for low this half century, um, we used to believe we had a monopoly, essentially a geographic monopoly on learning. And so you probably wouldn't go clear, I mean, you might, but mostly students stayed in their region and you, uh, you had that monopoly to draw upon. That's not true anymore. When we went online, that meant we had students, even at the University of Illinois Springfield, um, we had students from 49 states and then there'd always be one 
North Dakota or Rhode Island that didn't have a student a given year. But, you know, but cumulatively you had them all and then you had a dozen or 20 some foreign countries, uh, students from those countries uh, online taking degrees. So your competition, um, when, when an institution looks at, should they go online? And they say, oh, well, if we go online, you know, we might lose our local students. Well, you're, you're, you're losing this massive market. <clears throat> and um, if students, even in your local community, want an online degree or an online certificate, um, they'll go to the University of Illinois Springfield, or they'll go to MIT, or they'll go to Georgia Tech, or they'll go to you name it, you know, whatever university provides it because, you know, it, it's as close as their computer. And that is, has been a dramatic change for some administrators who were slow to understand that we are no longer those ivy covered wall institutions that uh, of, of decades ago. Yeah, and it's keeping institutions uh, honest and spurring innovation and, and really giving students more choice than they've ever had before. Uh, my audience knows I'm originally from Effingham, Illinois, just a few hours south of Springfield, and a graduating class of about 200 and 195 of those 200 um, either went to Eastern Illinois, University of Illinois, uh, Springfield, or maybe ventured up into Chicago. Um, and that was it. Nobody really went out of state and there was no online options at that point. And now I talk with my friends from, from Effingham and many of their kids are doing online programs at you know, either a Big Ten school or somewhere else. And they're relocating and they're getting out of the area. So I think really the message is if you don't provide this, you're leaving yourself uh, open to risking those students going online somewhere else uh, that's providing that kind of quality online experience. Absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> I was in an academic conference online uh, yesterday. And uh, uh, actually, I'll mention it was Arizona State's uh, remote uh, faculty conference. And I was asked, I have a grandson, in fact, and I was asked, well, you know, should you be planning for your grandson to go on campus or online? And I think, um, I, I think it's just a little cloudy because again, there's that maturation that takes place in that year or two on campus in interacting with peers. And yet um, much of the uh, forward thinking learning is going on online. And so we see proposals for the first two years to be free of college and will be basically a, a, a K through 14 level paid through whatever taxes and federal dollars. And so maybe, maybe it is at that point. But what I can say for certain is my grandson will be taking classes and certificates and perhaps advanced degrees online from the equivalent or the actual Coursera, edX, um, from these uh, collaborations that allow universities to provide uh, degrees online. So I think as a society, we need to look at how do we mature our youth? And many youth, of course, half the youth, more than half, you know, don't go to college. Those that don't go to college, get over it, you know, they do it and, and they succeed. But is there a, 
a, a way to give them that experience, but also give them more flexibility than they have in the local marketplace. And I think it's also safe to say your grandson will be taking courses well beyond, uh, you know, 20 years old, 22 years old, right? That is, you know, the way the, the markets are moving now and, and certainly in the future, uh, this pre-K to gray idea, or as you said earlier, uh, you know, through 60 or whatever age, um, that is going to be the norm. And, and why not be preparing now today for that future that is really uh, inevitable? Um, while I have you here, I, I have to ask if you have a, a visionary um, perspective on something that um, a lot of people may have in the short term gotten wrong uh, through the pandemic. Um, there was a lot of talk of a mass exodus of uh, institutions in higher ed that we, we may not need 4,000 plus, maybe it'll shrink down. Hasn't really happened. Um, and, and our mutual friend and colleague, Michael Horn, even had uh, an article recently saying, I was, I was wrong, but maybe not. Maybe it is something that still is a threat for, for many institutions in the next coming years. Um, do you have any crystal ball predictions on, uh, are we out of the woods uh, as a higher ed community, or are there still some very real uh, uncertainties and, and threats to the livelihoods of many um, of uh, our universities? Absolutely. I believe that um, uncertainty is uh, the proper term. You know, Michael Horns, um, longtime colleague, and uh, uh, rest in peace, Clayton Christensen, uh, talked about the disruption of online learning. And he predicted to much controversy that half the institutions would close over a period of 10 or 20 years. I think he's still right. He is still right. And Michael, who co-authored with Clay, you know, is, is still right. It, this is not an efficient way to deliver a curriculum. Now, of course, as you've heard, I, I, I do appreciate and recognize the maturation value of college at the undergraduate level, but in delivering learning, and that's not just facts, you know, that's soft skills, hard skills, et cetera, to a business and industry environment that increasingly is online itself. Um, increasingly, those employees are not meeting face-to-face. -face. They're out, they're field officers. Their, their meetings are virtual. So um, I, this really is much bigger than education. It's the societal change the digital transformation and artificial intelligence, the fourth industrial revolution, you know, that we're going through now is going to make huge differences. And for faculty, um, the opportunities will change. Um, the AI will, will allow for the delivery of adaptive learning. Adaptive learning is, um, you know, uh, uh, instruction, that adapts by quizzing you, that skips over the parts you already know and moves you forward more quickly than you can. And that, that for me, in 50 years as a faculty member, now emeritus, you know, that was one of the biggest frustrations was to teach a class, let's say, of 30 students. And, you know, five of them were very bright and, and had already knew the material. They could pass the final on day one. And five of them 
we struggled with it because they didn't have enough math maybe or they didn't have you know they didn't have the background not their personal fault but but they hadn't been uh, they didn't have the underpinnings and so how you you aimed at the middle and then those at the extremes um, were hurt and artificial intelligence and adaptive learning will personalize the learning that's taking place and that will uh, be yet another step in the transformation of higher education. And I actually think that's one of the most exciting silver linings of the pandemic um, is that many professors and, and K-12 educators as well um, have by brute force gotten over the misconception that AI and technology are coming to take their jobs. Um, I think it's really highlighted that AI and technology are there to enhance the student experience and to enhance the educator experience, the professor experience, to help get everyone to a foundational level set so that your experience delivering uh, your course as a professor is higher value add, more rich in discussion, at the K-12 level, more one-on-one -on -one education, small group education, giving just-in-time education to those students that need the person uh, there, inspiring, connecting, doing the things that technology um, has a harder time doing, right? And the things that most professors and educators are passionate about, uh, you know, seeing the light bulbs go off and not uh, doing administrative paperwork or grading things, right? And so I really am excited. I think this is the, the dawn of the golden age of education, not just online education, but just education in general. Um, do you get a similar sense? Uh, are professors, you know, embracing technology in ways that we never kind of thought would happen this quickly? And, and are they, I know, worn out and uh, fatigued, but are they, is there some excitement moving into this next school year? Yeah, I think that a significant portion um, half, maybe more than half, are embracing the technology, the transformation. There are others that fear that, that feel insecure. Um, and I think we encounter that in instructional design units, you know, or in faculty who say, eh, I'll never, ah, there's no way I can engage a student or I can, and, and that's false. But but they say that, but it's really out of fear. It's, it's their personal fear of moving forward. And so it's a difficult transition. And we saw those shakeouts again in the newspapers. And we saw, you know, uh, uh, and in the uh, magazines and whatnot, but, but also in the music industry. Um, we need to adapt. We're going to serve our publics better uh, if we do adapt. And so, uh, it's inevitable. The change is inevitable. Um, it's just how quickly it comes. And because of the pandemic, it's coming more rapidly than it would have. Absolutely. All right. We're wrapping up our time here. This has been a great conversation. We're going to have to have you back on in the fall because there's so much more to talk about. But as my audience knows, I like to end on a, a high note, a half glass full uh, story. So give us a good story of success, uh, either from uh, this year or even uh, last year coming through the pandemic. Sure. You know, it's interesting that um, for a couple of decades, I was so actively involved in the day-to-day -day operations, not so much in the last few years as I moved in the administration, but uh, of, of online. Uh, 
but I tried again and again to, uh, to get us to uh, offer non-credit continuing and professional education. And I ran into old rules and red tape that made that difficult. And yet Dr. Vicki Cook, who uh, replaced me as um, executive director of online and uh, learning and engagement has been able to cut through that now during this period. And we have not just the university, but of course, companies had provided training in person. Many companies would do that. Come to the home office and we'll train you. And so then they weren't prepared. And so now we, as a university, are helping corporations and for-profit entities, as well as um, uh, government agencies in delivering learning to their clientele. So that's been really exciting because we've expanded what, what we're doing beyond the traditional student. I love it. And that so much speaks this whole conversation to uh, what we often talk about here is the fall of 2021 should not look like the fall of 2019. We can't go back to the way things were because they weren't that great for many of our student populations. And so uh, this has been a really exciting and uplifting conversation about the future of education. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, JW. What a wonderful opportunity to take a look ahead. And to learn more, uh, that people can follow you on LinkedIn. They can look out for your uh, uh, articles and Inside Higher Ed. How else can they connect with you beyond this episode? Well, you're welcome to contact me via Gmail, rayschroeder at gmail.com. And uh, always interested in uh, what's going on beyond the uh, university. Perfect. And to my audience, thank you so much for joining another episode. Uh, check out past episodes on our website or wherever you consume your video or audio podcast. And we'll see you on a future episode soon. Thanks again. And always, always keep learning.